The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. Let's pray. Father, we come now to your word, eager to hear from you. Will you speak? We can ask that to you because in Christ you are eager to hear from us and eager to talk to us. And so we can know you have spoken and will speak. You'll open your word up to us. You'll, you'll tell us what's true. You'll guide us into the truth. You'll build us. You'll, you'll correct us. You'll do that. You're eager to. You hear our voice. It grabs your attention and you respond. Thank you. So will you respond, Lord, in a way that does good as you understand good, that builds up your people here and brings us to greater and deeper and wider and more joyful life? Take this word this morning from 1 Peter. And like the prophet Isaiah, who I'm sure was on Peter's mind, like the prophet Isaiah mentioned, will you make yourself our fear? that you yourself might become our sanctuary. Do that this morning, please, Lord, by your Spirit's power. Amen. We've all had that friend who only contacts you when you need something. When he needs something from you, I should say. He calls you and he treats you politely, but it comes out of the blue. And you weren't expecting it. And, and he exchanges with you some nice ease, then he cuts to the chase and asks you for what he needs from you. We've all been there, and if we're honest, we've probably done that once or twice. In that situation, what's the problem? It probably isn't the actual request, the thing that's being asked for, because you probably have it and are inclined to give it, and you, and you like to be helpful, and you do know who this guy is. It's probably not just the request that's off. I think the situation sours when there's a sense that in this other person, there's something there that says, he only thinks about me as if I exist to meet his needs. Otherwise, he doesn't really care about me. And I don't mean anything to him. And until now, they need something. Now I'm useful. Now. Now he cares. When we smell that, that, that kind of that one-way road, that sense of proud self-focus in this other guy, we, we start to kind of feel used by the requests for help. It kind of puts us off, and it undermines and maybe even ruins our inclination to be helpful and generous, which we otherwise would be. 
That kind of dynamic, that's the thing that's before us this morning in our passage, our very, very brief, short passage, is one verse. And we need to think about it, but not here on this horizontal plane, person to person, asking and giving help between people. First Peter 1.17 turns this dynamic vertical and makes it between us and God. And as it does so, maybe it exposes something in us, something human that remains in us even as we become Christians, even once we're saved. So maybe something here that, that kind of uh, exposes something in us and corrects us and and maybe there's something that kind of sits on us a little, bit, a little bit heavy this morning, perhaps for you. But I hope that if it does, you keep in mind that if it sits heavy, it sits in a context of something else that's really about much hope and much help. I think it kind of sits heavy on us, kind of like one of those weighted blankets does. Those things are impossible to carry around. But people buy them because there's something about the weight on us that actually soothes, that encourages, brings comfort. And I think that in this morning's verse, there's something about that, maybe confronting, maybe correcting, but I hope as it weighs on us, also encouraging and comforting. So let me read the passage I'm actually going to begin a little bit before what we saw two weeks ago, back in verse 14, but we're only going to be focusing on verse 17, just one verse this morning. This is from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We'll pause there this morning. Just one verse, two observations from it. Here's the first. As obedient children, we are privileged to call on God as our Father. As obedient children, we are privileged to call on God as our Father. Verse 14 describes all Christians as obedient children. And as we noted before, this connects us back up to verse 2. And it's talking about how it is that we were saved. If you're a Christian, you can read beginning verses and you can say, here's what's true of me. I was chosen by God. I was elect of God, chosen for, it says, obedience to Jesus Christ and then for sprinkling with his blood, being included in the covenant. And so what happened was God sent in some circumstance to you the message of the gospel and you heard the call from Jesus Turn to me, repent, come. You heard that call and you obeyed it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you were sprinkled with the blood, you were saved, became a Christian. That's what he's getting at there when he talks about all of us as obedient children. And so then, 
There's something that follows. Again, this was two weeks ago in verses 14 and 15. He says then, so if that's who you are, then live in a certain way, not like you used to. Not according to the passions of your former ignorance, but instead be holy as the one who called you is holy. That's what, that's what kind of follows from who we are. And there's something sweet there. We, we saw this, the holiness of God considered as the foundation for our lives. Is the, it's kind of the defining characteristic of us. That was sweet. God's holiness. But now here in verse 17, a different note is introduced. And you recall that in verse 15, there was this literal reading that almost kind of like gives God a name, calls him the Holy One. So it says, as the one who called you is the Holy One. Well, now that gets turned in our verse. The one who called us is the Holy One. Now it's we call on him as Father. The calling gets turned. He calls us, now we call him. He calls us as the Holy One, we call him as Father. You see the turn there in our verse. Something really interesting there. He chose to call us to himself, to make us his children, and in so doing, he's chosen to become to you Father. This is true of us only. We who are biblical Christians, a sweet privilege. By uniting us spiritually in Christ, by joining us spiritually to him, he did something supernatural that is just as real of us as everything physical and natural. We, we kind of, I think we sort of tend to think often that, yeah, for sure, really, my, my earthly parents are my parents. And this thing right here, that's kind of a metaphor. That's kind of like, sort of. This is real, that's sort of like that. No, 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 no. This is real, and that is real, just the same. Natural and supernatural. God has become to his people, connected us to Christ, he has become to you Father. Come to relate to you as Father, with you as his child. This is such a privilege. Fathers, when they're executing their role well, fathers look over their families. They're concerned about their kids. They care for them. They watch out for them. They exercise authority and power to protect and provide, to care for, to, to develop and grow up. And even human fathers do this. They know how to do it, and they do it. Imperfectly, for sure. Sin mars things, for sure. But Jesus talked about this, didn't he? That, that even earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, and often do. But then, you put on top of that, with the Holy One as Father, in whom there is no darkness and there is no sin, he's never going to see that marred. All of that that fathers are in, in, in their best, all of that he is excellently, perfectly. So he is perfectly aware of and in tune with the circumstances of and the, 
the threats that face and the weaknesses and the fears and the daily concerns of each one of his children, of you. He knows your failures and he knows your struggles and he knows the, the folly that bounces around inside of your mind and he, he sees it and he gets it and he knows you well and he knows you so deeply. And he is thoroughly inclined. This is not true of Christians. It's true of you, Christian. Do you realize this is the doctrine of the fatherhood of God of Christians and your reality? That he looks at you and knows you and is thoroughly, eagerly inclined to move, to attend to you where you are and to bring about for you what you need. His heart is full of wide, long, high, deep love for you, us and you. And on purpose, deliberately, thoughtfully, intentionally, for you, he chose to make himself relate to you like father to child and you to him like child to dad. That's what he did in your life. His eye is on you and his hand is for you and his heart is full of grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. He sees and he knows and he is supremely able to act. He's the Almighty One. Your Father is God, maker of heaven and earth and of you and of all of your circumstances. And he knows you. His heart is full for you because he put you in Christ and is ready to hear you and help. That is the one that you call on. What are the odds that he blows you off? What are the odds? Maybe make yourself answer that question. What are the odds that he blows you off? Nil. Nil. He will not blow you off. He may not answer as you think he should answer as you want, but he will not blow you off. He's your father. This is the one you call to as a child when in need, and we are always in need. And when it says here, if you call on him, really that means since you call on him. The assumption here is that that's what we're doing. Grammatically, this is a regular, ongoing calling. It's, it's a constant thing. It's the assumption that we're facing. We call on him. We pray to him. It's regular. Now, there is a command that's coming up a little later in the verse, but right now what we're dealing with is just the, the base foundational assumption. God, by sovereign grace, has called you into the position where you call out to him as your father, and so that's what your daily life is marked by. Right? You live before him, and you commune with him, and you place your burdens before him, 
and you open the Bible and constantly ask him for fatherly wisdom and for fatherly guidance and for fatherly correction and help and provision and protection and comfort and encouragement and an outpoured power and the sense of his presence, you are regularly, continually calling on him, walking with him prayerful without ceasing. You're a child of his. That's what you do. Right? I think probably most of us feel just a little bit of a soft spot in the floor when we walk into the topic of our prayer lives. I just worked through a paragraph that doesn't really describe me. Probably not you. It's the assumption and not quite reality. We know we don't pray as often or as meaningfully as we want to. There could be a lot of reasons for that. There are a lot of reasons for that. Sometimes we don't know exactly how or exactly what to pray. Life kind of gets out of hand and we lose time. We don't have a space in our house where we can be kind of isolated and, and the different things that are bouncing into your life or constantly like demanding your attention and pulling you away. There's, there's all kinds of different reasons, but I think that beneath all of them, the bottom level reason that we need to be honest about, the, at, at the bottom, the basic problem behind our prayerlessness, I think, is that most of the time we think we have things pretty much under control. Pretty much. We have a decent handle on things. There, yeah, there's a gap between what is and what, what could be, but I kind of think that if I just did a little bit better and right, then I could kind of close that gap. I, I just had this experience. I know I'm going to preach this sermon, right? I know I'm going to say these things. I, I walked by somebody in, in the hallway a short time ago and saw an expression on this person's face and thought, hmm, what's that about? And then the first thought I had was, I think maybe I need to, I think maybe I need to, and it was about things that I could do or say or approach or how I could, and like the fifth thought down with this sermon in my mind is, maybe I should pray. That's me with the sermon in mind. I know there's a gap there, but it's not a gap that I can't cover if I don't just you know, hold my mouth right and step over this way. Then I can make that, I've got it pretty well under control. That's the problem beneath prayerlessness. We've got a handle on it or we can get there. And so then prayer feels a little more like appropriate duty. Maybe, maybe deference to God's authority, I suppose, but not like desperate need. It just doesn't feel like that because we don't see it like that. But watch what happens when you do face something desperate. When you get really jarred by life, when something happens, you pray almost instinctively. Because now you know, I need, and I can't help, help, help. Well, Christian, it would perhaps help us to be reminded that our situation is more desperate and our need is greater perhaps than we realize. At the end of the verse, 
brings up something that we've talked about before. He mentions throughout the time of your exile, the time of your exile, that is now, this time. And with the word exile, we're right back in verse 1. Remember where this all started. We Christians, we are exiles in the world, scattered everywhere throughout the land. We're, we're scattered. We're not home. We are aliens and strangers here, even here in the land of our birth for many of us. Because God has saved us to himself, God has, God has chosen us and called us to himself, and because of that then, we have no lasting home here in this place. We live here amidst a world that, that disagrees with what is at our core and opposes all that is most precious to us, all that is true and lasting and lovely. The world all around us does not know God, and so it opposes him, and therefore it opposes us. This is the time of our exile right now. Do we honestly think that we have a handle on that? No. There's not a bit of that that's under our control. We can't control anything. We can't control our own lives. We can't fix ourselves, let alone the world all around us, the, the neighbors and the country and the nations that all disagree and are actually plotting against the Lord, says Psalm 2. None of that is under our control, not a bit of it. And the only way I think that we, that we get by thinking that we've got some, some handle on things is that we really don't see the scope of the mission or the scope of the battle. We are little children wandering around lost at the mall with no hope of finding our way home and we need desperately for dad to come and grab us to find us. We need to be fathered. And the good news is that we can be. That God on purpose intentionally has made it so that we can be. This is the privilege that Christ won for us. Christ went to the grave and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. You know, you know the doctrinal statements, but do you realize that when he ascended into heaven, what he did was he anchored us firmly in the throne room of God, never to be cast out. And so God Almighty sits on the throne with an earshot of your weak voice, eager to hear you call to him. Never to cast you out. And so we have to look around at the weakness and the vulnerability in our own lives, the weakness and the vulnerability in, that we face before this world, and then we have to realize that right here, right here is the Almighty One enthroned saying, what do you need? Speak. I'm listening. The only reason you're here is that I put you here because I want to listen to you. I want to help. I want to intervene. What do you need? Speak. Do you have need? I have mercy. I have grace for this time. What is it?
Do you see, Christian, do you see the needs of your own heart and the needs of those around you? Do you understand some scope of the mission that we are engaged in? We are speaking about a guy who rose from the dead to people who are spiritually dead and don't buy that. We are engaged in building a church at the very threshold, the gate of hell, says Jesus. That's impossible. My heart is prone to wonder. It goes like this constantly. I can't tame it. You can't either. Our need is vast. And the one with all power is right next to you saying, call on me. I'm your father. I want to hear and help. Speak. I struggled a lot with how to put this before the church. And so it's come out how it's come out. Because in me there is this dual, this dual like, ah, and ah. Oh. Those two things there are both, and I don't know which came out more, maybe a little bit, ah, came out a little more. But, but both are there. Partially because both are there as I look at my own life and the prayerlessness that plagues me. But, but I, I look around and I say, I don't know if we as a church pray like our lives depended on it. What do you think about that? We as a church. I don't think so. I, I don't... I don't know about each individual person, and I don't really know about me even. But I think that each of us together at making this church as a whole, that we as a people are too accustomed to kind of having a handle on things. We're an accomplished people. We're relatively successful and I think we need to be introduced to the fact that we don't have any grip on anything that's important. Only God does. And as I see that more, and perhaps as we see that more, we will pray to the one who can move heaven and earth. The one who can move the mountains, the one who can carry us through the flood and wants to. That's why he made prayer. That's why he made you his child. That's why he opened up his throne room to you because he wants you to pray. That he would gain the glory as the giver and that you'd be given to. It is our privilege as children of God, to pray to God as Father. Let's do so individually. Let's do so in groups, at church gatherings. Let's pray. Call on him as Father and do so with the second point in mind. Here's the second observation. We must properly fear the Father we call on. 
and must properly fear the Father we call on. It's called Father here. We've talked about that. And in several ways, though, we are reminded not to become too presumptive or flippant towards our Father. So we've seen verses 15 and 16 both sound this note very heavily of holiness. Our Father's the Holy One, set apart, distinct. There's no sin or darkness in him. We've, we've seen that right before our verse. And then within the verse itself, it says, we call on one as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Our Father judges that is, he evaluates and decides and brings right consequences. One day, of course, at the day of judgment, but also every day now as he disciplines us. He judges without any partiality. In him there is no unrighteous bias. He's not impressed with people. He doesn't let things slide because of someone's position or status. He's an impartial judge. He can't be otherwise. He's the Holy One, and he perfectly, fully loves righteousness. And he sees all of life, and he knows exactly what's true, exactly what is happening, exactly what matches his holy law, that is to say, what matches his holy character, which is the basis of his holy law. He sees, he knows, and he calls it like he sees it. In every person, everywhere, always, Christians included. The emphasis here is on us too. He's impartial. He judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Which is not to say he judges according to whether or not those deeds are forgiven. Of course they're forgiven. We're Christians. In every one of our sinful deeds, past, present, and future, all of them were on the cross. All of them are under this sprinkled blood that we've seen before. All of them are forgiven. That's settled. That's not the question. That's not the issue here. He's not judging deeds to see whether they are forgiven. He's judging the deed according to the deed itself, its quality. Was that deed sin or was that deed not sin? That's what he's judging, impartially us too. And when he sees sin in us, he does not wink at it because we're his children. But in fact, like any good parent, he is actually more bothered, more concerned. Like any good parent, you're more bothered to see something wrong in your own kids. The neighbor kids may do X, Y, Z, but my kids are not going to. A good parent thinks like that. He looks, he sees, and he's deeply bothered by sin in his own children. And so he will bring discipline to us, to us in our sin. That's the one, that's the father that we are calling out to, a father who is holy. And so finally now, here we come to the command at the end of the verse. Since that's who he is, in fear, conduct yourselves. And fear is the front-loaded word. It's the word of emphasis. In fear, throughout the time of your exile, conduct yourself. In fear, live. 
Live in fear. Really? I thought we sang a whole bunch of songs about there's no more fear. Don't we do that? That seems odd. That's exactly what it says. To live in the fear of God is the proper response to him as long as we understand this fear properly. The fear of God is not just a feeling about being like scared or terrified. No. Rather, it is best to think of it as the careful attention to and respect of God that comes as you realize who he is and how very vulnerable you are, how very small and dependent you are before him. He's God. He's holy. He sees and sees through you and holds you in his hand and you are at his will. And in yourself, you are not worthy. Realizing this, our position in him, our position in relation to him, realizing that what may naturally follow from that is a whole bunch of different things. The emotion of unease that makes one careful not to cross him, that, that may come. Some sense of reverence naturally could follow. Similar to what you see when you look at a storm or you look at, at a massive crashing sea and you, and you feel almost in your chest, whoa, that's beyond me. And I'm vulnerable. Something massive and marvelous. The fear of God can generate all kinds of different feelings. Unease and smallness and reverence and awe. All kinds of different feelings could come. But what the fear of God is not, this is maybe helpful also, what the fear of God is not is mindless overlooking of God. Taking him for granted. It is not careless forgetfulness of God as we do our own thing according to our own desires. To conduct ourselves in fear, to live in fear, like the verse commands, is to conduct ourselves mindful, careful, thoughtful, and humble before the Lord, beneath Him. It's the conscious regarding of God as God. All of the world is sustained in every moment only by his life-giving power. All of it runs according to his ultimate plan. All comes to an end when he wills it. All is accountable to him. This world is not ours. We do not control it. We're all just guests here for a moment. We are finite and full of folly. What he says is what's true. What he thinks is what matters. What he decides is what will be. 
the Lord, the God of the Bible. That God is the one true God. He spoke everything into existence and He spoke and a flood wiped it out. He spoke and the waters parted. He speaks and disease runs away from people. He speaks and the dead rise up off their, off their deathbeds. And then He speaks again and floods come and disease afflicts and life flees. He is the Lord maker and impartial judge of heaven and earth and all that is in it. Conduct yourselves in the fear of him. Now let me say that in two ways to make a very important point. Because maybe you're hearing this and you're wondering about it. Because that all kind of sounds sort of heavy. And I'm not sure that I like that so much. I, I don't know that I like to hear, fear him, fear God. Let me say it a second way to, to point out something. To point out why this doctrine should, in fact, be precious to us. So say it one way. Fear God. Okay. Now, let me turn it. Fear God. Fear God. Fear Him. Not any other people. Not any other neighbors, friends, family members, classmates, bosses. Don't fear any corporations or employers or governments or politicians or government policies or laws. Don't fear any climate change don't fear economic cycles, don't fear tax codes, don't fear diseases, don't fear social media influencers and their newest pronouncement about what you must be or you're a loser. Nothing else and no one else. Fear God and fear God alone who reigns over all of that so that, he reigns over all of that so that none of that can demand your attention and focus and control your heart and enslave you to it. Get this. This is the point. We are people. We fear something. And the choice is God or the world. And one of these is freedom and life and wisdom and hope, and one of them is enslavement. And the lie of the devil is that he flips him around. To fear God, you heard the pastor talking about that, you don't want any bit of that, that's going to be enslavement. Oh, no, 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 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and life and righteousness and hope and joy. And the only alternative is the fear of everything else under the sun that will enslave you and demand from you your allegiance and then will crush you as you fail. 
That's the way the world works, and there are only two choices, fear the world or fear God. And the good news is that in Christ you're set free from one and delivered to the fear of God. Praise him. That's hard to get, and it's gloriously true. So we should hear Fear God as precious and relieving and life-giving because it is, and the alternative is death. The Lord is God. He is holy and he judges impartially and we are accountable to him. And he is the only one in whose hands is life and hope and joy. We are privileged to be accountable to him. So pay attention to him and what he is like and what he wants and what he commands in his word. And be careful to live in ways that please him such that when he sees, he will judge your deeds as righteous and just and godly, as holy. Fear God, the Holy One, and nothing and no one else. This is the command and the call and the privilege of the Christian because you are in Christ. You can fear him. That is to say, you can have a heart set on the Lord and you can follow Isaiah and fear, dread not all the things of the earth and all the people of the earth. Fear him and he will become your sanctuary. This is precious. The fear of the Lord it comes back around to be very similar to the word, the verse right before it, which is why those things are tied together in Isaiah 8. They, they are very close, the holiness of God, be holy, the fear of God, fear him. They are, they are very close. And so it's worth asking here, and it probably is common to read it as, well, this is just him saying the same thing again, just kind of driving it home in a different way. But not quite. Verse 17 has a different context. Remember where we started is the context of prayer. Peter here is introducing a concept that he will revisit in several ways later in the book. We should pray. We need to pray. As exiles, we have great needs, and it's our privilege now as, as children of God to pray. So call out to him. But... Don't think you can use him. If you try to carry on with life by your own power, just doing your own thing, or to use the words of verse 14, if we were to live conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, or to use the words of verse 18, which really is just part of the same sentence as we'll see next week, if we were to live carrying on in the feudal way of life that we got passed on to us from our forefathers. We just carry on doing our own thing. Sinful, normal, self-focused. We just walk along and all that until like, whoa, that's a problem. Hey, God, God, can I have some help here? Peter's saying, don't expect that prayer to be answered. Not because he blows you off, because he doesn't play that game for your good. 
This is a point he makes several times. Most notably, we'll, we'll see it coming up in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 7, you could jot this down a glance ahead. Husbands, Peter makes the same point. Husbands, God has told you some things about how to treat your wives, and if you don't treat your wives that way, it blocks your prayers. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. The Lord's eyes are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. Similar point. Briefly, to put it a simple sentence, our sin hinders our prayer. Not, again, not because God does not hear, not because God wants to blow us off, but because God's not interested in being used. He is not satisfied with and will not cooperate with or feed any self-focused habit of fickle friendship. He will not reinforce in us the human tendency to go our own way and do our own thing using him as a safety net. He's too good for that. He loves you too much to train you in that bad habit. Follow that? You've got to follow that. It's very easy to think that God's acting something like, well, if you don't talk to me, then I'm not going to talk to you. No, 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 no. God is too good. God loves you too much to train you in the practice of walking away from him and only checking back when you need. He's too kind to allow the world and sin to remain your fear. He's too gracious to let you use him for what you think you need during the time of your exile. We walk the earth here and we will feel the pressure of opposition and we'll cry out to God and ask him to stop it. You'll feel the need of uncertainty and failing finances or health and you'll cry out to God to sustain and to shore it up and to fix it, to supply. You'll worry for your kids and you'll cry out to God to, to save them and to keep them safe. And you need those things for sure, true, absolutely, Yes. But God knows best that what you need most is the God-centered heart that's the only thing that will sustain you in this foreign land of your pilgrimage. A heart that wanders from God and has healthy kids has no hope. You need God as your fear. God is the one who controls your attention, who controls your heart, who controls your allegiance. That's what you need. That's where life is found, not in the world. And so he calls out to us and works constantly so as to, to steer us into the seeking first of him and his kingdom. He'll add all the other stuff to you, yes, that you need. He'll add all of the other things, but seek him first and seek his kingdom. That's where life is found. He is the father who wants to give that to you who wants to give you the best and most important of all gifts, what you need most, a heart riveted on him. And that is why Jesus went to the cross. To give you God. To give you God 
as the one who can be your proper fear. Give you God as the one who can be your sanctuary. He rose again and gave you the Spirit such that the Spirit now lives in you to empower you in these ways that are so unnatural. To walk in the fear of God, to walk safe in Christ, to walk privileged to have the Father's ear, to walk attentive to Him, calling out to Him. Church, fear the Father and call out to Him. He's eager to hear. He's eager to walk with you. That's why he saved you. Make you a child and bring you into his home. Walk with you arm in arm. That's why he saved you. I recognize that this is in some ways heavy. But may it rest on you and on us like a weighted blanket that actually soothes. God is God. Your Father and your help. He loves you. He hears you. Call to him. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.